good morning, church. If you would uh, join me by standing as we read God's word together this morning. We're going to look at two passages that will be relevant for our study to introduce our time in Ezekiel. We're going to start in 2 Kings, and uh, we're going to be working down through 24, uh, chapter 24 through the end, or roughly, I think, 11 or so, or uh, 17 or so. So join me there, and then we'll head over to the first few verses of Ezekiel. In the days of Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, actually, I'm going to pick up in verse 8. I want to make sure I'm following what's on the screen there. Um, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Neshusta, and the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and according to what that was, um, sorry, he did what was uh, evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while the servants were besieging it, and Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave, uh, Judah gave, him, uh, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself, his mother, and his servants, and his officials, and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of, the reign, of his reign and carried the, um, off the treasures uh, of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the, vest, the vessels of gold and the temple of, the, of God which Solomon, the king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths, and none remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his, his officials, and the chief men of the land. He took into capt- captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000 and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000 of all of them strong and fit to war for war. The king of Babylon made Matiah, excuse me, Jehoiakim's uncle king of the place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Now, Ezekiel chapter 1. In the 13th year of the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles there by the Kabar Canal. And the heavens were opened up, and I saw visions of God. And on the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. Well, as you already know by now, and who knew, by the way, with the, with the uh, fill of the room, that Ezekiel will be such a popular uh, 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 draw for people to come in for on Sunday morning, right? Um, who knew? Uh, but no, I'm just, just joking. But we're, we're going to launch into a new series here this morning on Ezekiel. It should take us up to about mid-January together. And uh, man, Ezekiel's a, a powerful book. It's going to really, I think, encourage us together as God's people over the course of the next few months, 48 chapters. Now, in 48 chapters, I can't cover every chapter one by one in that time, uh, verse by verse, but we are going to try to cover it from a, from a redemptive historical perspective to try to help us see the, how it fits into God's overarching plan, what is revealed to us, what are the truths and themes that are in it to help us and help encourage God's people, even in this 
day. My guess is, my guess is that you have not been a part of a church that's ever preached through the book of Ezekiel. If, if you are, you are an anomaly, right? Uh, this is not a book that many people come go, oh man, I just got to preach the book of Ezekiel, man, because that one, that's the one. That's the one people want to hear, right? I mean, because look, Ezekiel is, is a hard book to read. It's got some strange tales. It's got some strange visions. Ezekiel himself sometimes comes off a bit odd. And you're like, what in the world? Why, God, did you give us this book? You know, why did you give us this prophecy? But the reality is, is the most, the reason why many of us don't read Ezekiel is because it deals with the hardness of life. Like he, it, it speaks right into the hard places of Israel's day. And it makes us confront the reality of just sin and death and brokenness in our life and, and how the world itself is just so far from what is intended to be. And I can't help but think about how providential it is that God would have us start this series on September 11th. 21 years since that day and when we were attacked, the Twin Towers were attacked in New York. Uh, probably one of the most horrific, if not the most horrific day on American soil. Hard day. And then the following season, and in fact, as a, knowing that like I was kind of just entering into adulthood during that time, I remember where I was, I was finishing up college, I'll never forget where I was, I'll never forget who I was with, I'll never forget how I felt that day, and, and I can say with all sincerity that I don't think one event has shaped my adult life more in terms of, in terms of understanding the world and what's happened in the world, one event's probably shaped that more than any other than 9-11. But I think what happens when you look at 9-11 and you look at books and prophecies like Ezekiel, it forces us to acknowledge the deep brokenness, the deep wickedness, the deep evil that exists in the world. It makes us wonder, is there anything better? Amen. It makes us wonder, with all the effort we put at life and all the efforts we try to create these wonderful cities and cultures and societies, are we actually getting anywhere? Will there be a time, will there be a place when we will actually experience unfettered and full shalom or peace? That's, I mean, think about how that works in the terms of our own longings inside of us, where we want real peace, we want real harmony, we want a world that actually functions like that. And we wonder, is there really a paradise? And the book of Ezekiel is at least one place in the Bible where God makes it very, very emphatically clear, yes, there is. There is a paradise to come. There is a better world coming. There is a world that he is working out through his redemptive purposes. And one day those who are in Christ will inhabit that world and will do so forever and ever. Ezekiel's own name is God strengthens. That's what his main name is. Or God will strengthen. And it is really one of the great recurring themes that runs throughout all of Scripture, that God promises full restoration, full redemption, full reconciliation in the new heavens and new earth, and he strengthens his people to live for that day. And so Ezekiel, in large sense, speaks into our own dystopian reality. I mean, you like dystopian movies and tales and all that kind of stuff, right? My wife loves them. I'm a little weirded out sometimes by them. Hunger Games, of course, is one of the more recent ones, but we can think back to like Mad Max in the 80s, right? I mean, that, I'm an eight child of the 80s. Um, but these dystopian realities, I mean, they're, they, we like them because I think in the end of the day, they're just a reflection of our own story. They're our own interpretations of what's really wrong in the world. Well, 
Ezekiel can some function somewhat like a dystopian message, speaking into our own dystopian reality. And then, but the author of this is not us. It's God, and he's telling you what's telling us what's really wrong and what really needs to happen and what will happen and what he will do in order to fix all that is off, all that is wrong in the world. So Ezekiel's prophecy, like I said, functions as kind of a retelling of a dystopian reality that Judah was facing with this increasing influence of all these power nations around them and how their way of life was being corrupted constantly. The difference, though, between Ezekiel's prophecy and, say, the other prophecies that were produced and reproduced throughout human history or other dystopian tales throughout human history is that, like I said before, God is the author. God is the true ruler of the universe. No other dystopian tale will tell you that. They'll tell you mankind just needs to figure out something better. This dystopian tale tells us that through the Holy Spirit, God speaks to Judah and speaks to his people and exposes the real injustice that indicts them and the judgment that God will reap on the world and on his own people at times. Even so, and here's the wonderful news, it reveals though through Ezekiel about what paradise will actually is and what it entails and how his people will be strengthened in now and as we wait for that day. That we're not... We don't have to retell our own story and try to put new spin and new interpretation on it. God gives us everything we need to understand our moment right now. And he does it through Ezekiel then, and Ezekiel's message is relevant to us today. So my goal this morning is to help us understand that the central message of Ezekiel is this. God strengthens his people as we wait for paradise. Very simple. It's the central thing that we will, um, we will unpack throughout our time together. God strengthens his people as we wait for paradise. And this morning, my goal is to kind of look at the forest and not the trees, if you will. Because Ezekiel's got a lot of context and a lot of things that we got to understand about his message and why he was sent in that particular time this, uh, during that day. And so we're going to try to answer three questions together this morning, okay? One, who is Ezekiel? Two, what was Ezekiel's message? And three, why does it really matter to you and me? Very simple. And then next week we'll get into the trees. The landscape that Ezekiel lays out might be some, seem a little weird to us. And it did to me. And I was really intimidated when we said, oh, hey, we're going to preach through Ezekiel. But when I got into the landscape and I got into the trees and I understand the whole context of it, I was like, wow, I can't imagine a book being more relevant right now. So those are our questions we're going to try to answer this morning. So who is Ezekiel? Well, I think in order for us to understand Ezekiel... Before we talk about Ezekiel, we need to understand the cultural and the, and the political landscape of his day. The geopolitical landscape, if you will, using that kind of modern terminology. Well, we got to date Ezekiel's prophecy somewhere around the 7th century or the beginning of the 6th century. And what that means is we're at the end of the two kingdoms, at the end of the southern and the northern kingdom of, of, of Israel and Judah, in fact, Israel had already fallen and basically was non-existent, and Judah was there remaining as God's really sole people trying to declare who he was. And so Ezekiel's ministry is both to the exiles that were removed by Babylon into, uh, um, from Jerusalem into Babylon, but also his ministry is to those who are still left. It says in the text we read a minute ago that they were there left the poor people, these people who were just suffering. They didn't, they didn't and just see how unjust societies work, right? You're poor, you're not needed. We're going to take all the elites, we're going to take them back to Babylon, and we're going to re-educate them, we're going to rewire them so that we can spread more Babylonian culture. Does that at all sound familiar to you? 
right? Does that sound relevant to what we're talking about? We got to be careful. That that's, that's, that's the, nothing's changed. This is the world we live in, right? Now, we also know that the context that I just mentioned ago is that we're at the end of these great two kingdoms of, of Israel and Judah. Now, to understand, if you're not familiar with the, this, we got to go back even if several generations before this, and we know that there was a split in the kingdom of Israel after David, after Solomon, because of David's sin, because of Solomon's disobedience, the, the two kingdoms split. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And it was all because of God's judgment for God's people, not, and particularly David, not keeping his eye on the Lord. Now, so we know that all of this is background because it's God dealing with his own people. It's not Babylon. It's not Persia, we'll see in a few down the road. It's not Assyria. It's not Egypt. This is God dealing through the auspices of all these other powers with his own people. For all intents and purposes, there were three global powers in the day that constantly were threats to Israel historically. We had Egypt, which is the oldest one. We know this all the way back into Moses' day, right? And then they were the real world power for a very, very long time, and they eventually weakened over centuries. Then this northern power became really prominent called the Assyrians. And they're the ones who started moving south, and then they're the ones who overthrew Israel. And they were the main power of the day, leading all the way up, and even into Hezekiah's day, which is only a couple of kingdoms before Judah's fall. And, uh, but then there's this kingdom to the east called Babylon. Babylon's been a historic power. Babylon goes all the way back to Babel. But its power and its influence was marginal, and they were kind of lying in wait. And in fact, if you look at Scripture, almost every reference to the world, especially in Revelation, is a reference to who? Babylon. Babylon represents something bigger than Babylon here. It represents all of the world powers, as it were, that are opposed to the kingdom of God. And so you have this great power sitting in wait for so many centuries, and eventually Assyria over, uh, just to be, get down to the heart of it, Assyria um, uh, kind of overplays themselves. They move too far into Egypt, and they overextend their abilities, and they eventually get weakened, and there you go. Babylon comes in, jumps on it, and they come in, and they start leveraging their influence. Eventually, Judah falls to them. There are several waves of this fall in Jerusalem to Judah. There are several waves of exiles coming out. That The first wave we would know when we studied Daniel was way back, uh, maybe about five years before the, what we're talking about here with Ezekiel. Ezekiel is probably the second wave of these exiles because it, Judah didn't fall quietly. These kings kept trying to you know, rebel against Babylon, but every time he did, here comes Nebuchadnezzar in, and Nebuchadnezzar would come in and say, all right, I've had enough of you, and he eventually destroys the entire city in the temple, which comes in Ezekiel's study here. And I'm giving you all this detail this morning because Judah's resilience is important. Israel had fallen. They had given themselves over to all the pagan gods of Assyria and these two few nations, but outside of, you know, at the very beginning of Judah's um, split of the kingdom, Joash, um, all the kings of, Israel, of Judah up until the very end were faithful kings. They were kings that followed after the Lord's heart. They're the ones who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The prophet of Isaiah was so instrumental to the southern kingdom of Judah, and particularly to the greatest king of, of, of Judah, Hezekiah. And he kept them on the straight and narrow path, even though even Hezekiah, the great king himself, and again, I'm giving you lots of broad context here, he himself had his own critical missteps as king. But eventually, like I said, 
Things start to crumble. Judah begins to, Hezekiah passes on. His own son corrupts, does what's, does what's wrong and evil in the sight of the Lord. A couple more generations happen. Then you have Josiah who tries to re- reconcile the whole thing. He does what's right in the sight of the Lord, but that was a very short-lived reality. And everything after Josiah is just a crumbling towards Babylon's complete and utter takeover and exile. And there we, we get to um, Ezekiel. Now, why is this important for us? Well, it's important for us, yes, to always keep an eye on the geopolitical surroundings of our life. I think we're all there, right? We, we, we kind of get immersed into this. But I want us to see that in this message that we find in 2 Kings, and I'll go back to reading 2 Kings 19 and pull all the way to the end. That'll give you a really great context of everything that kind of happened. What's more important to our study in Ezekiel is how God was using those things. Not that they were the major players, not that they were the major threats, but how God was using these major powers to help and shape and judge his own people. One of the most significant features in the, in, in the kings, especially in 2 Kings, is as we go through all these kings of Israel and all these kings of Judah, there's one detail in every one of their descriptions that's there. You want to know what it is? It is he did right, what was right in the sight of the Lord, or he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Everything in 2 Kings is defined by that. And so what we are seeing in the writer of Kings is he's setting up the story so that Israel really understands why they are in the hands of Babylon. And it has nothing to do with Babylon's power or Assyria's power or Egypt's power. It has everything to do with the fact that they either worshipped God or they did not worship God. This goes all the way back to Moses. Let's back it up just a little bit more. And Moses is setting out in the Torah in, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and so on. Like, he gives these, these instructions to his people, particularly in Leviticus 26, 14 through 43. In fact, I want to read that, at least a portion of that to you here before we move along, because I think it will really help set some context. Leviticus 26, and we're going to look at uh, verses 14 for a few verses here, but I'll just give you a little taste of it. But if you will not listen and will not do all the commandments, if you, are, if you spurn my statutes and if, you're, if your soul uh, abhors my rules so that you are not able to do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with the panic, with wasting disease and fever that will consume your eyes and make your heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain. Your enemies shall eat it. And I will set, your face, I will set my face against you and you... Well, you shall be struck down before the enemies. Those who hate you will shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of, the, of this you do not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens, I'll make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your, earth, your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. And it keeps going over and over again. And if you then will not walk, and if you will then not walk, this is what I'll do. And God continues to show them the penalty the, the discipline, the consequences of not being his distinct people on the earth. So please understand, as we read this, Babylon is not the concern here. And friends, may I just invite us into this moment too, to invite that same idea into this moment. Other nations are not our problem. Other powers, other systems are not our problem. 
God's people have lived under numerous kinds of states, whether they're oligarchies or monarchies or Democrat, uh, democracies or, or, republic, or republics or whatever. And God's people have found a way to live faithfully in all those things throughout human history, throughout church history. And we would do well to remind ourselves that this is nothing different and we're just following the same pattern. And God uses those things and those events and those circumstances to shape in his own people in the midst of it, and sometimes shape us in painful ways. So the point here is clear. God's judgment flows from the warnings he gave Israel through Moses. God's people were not defined by the same markers of other peoples around them. That was the whole point. You're not like these other people. You're not out here to build some political power or regional power. And this is what the people wanted shortly after Moses, shortly after uh, uh, um, Joshua's death. What did the people start crying out for? And for? To Samuel, for a king. And God says, my people have already forgotten me. I am their king. I've given them a worship. As long as they just attend to who they are and how they're shaped to be my holy people, I will protect them. It doesn't matter what these other nations did. And every time through all this cycle, what did God do? When his people were trusting him, they had success and God protected them, even from much larger nations and much larger powers. God's people were never were to be defined by those covenant promises. They were to be defined by the boundaries of his law, particularly the Mosaic law. They were to be defined by his commands on how he was how he was to be worshipped as a central defining reality of their community. So what defines a faithful king? What defines an unfaithful king was simple. A faithful king was one who called the people and kept the people focused on God. They kept the people focused on his law and his covenant promises. Not on the geopolitical positions and postures that are going on around them. God, Lord, help us to see this. Right? Amen? An unfaithful king was the exact opposite. He accommodated very quickly to the religious and cultural distinctives, the religious and cultural scenes of Israel to these other nations so that though they might have had an outward demonstration of their Jewish roots or Jewish heritage, something very outward, at the end of the day, they had nothing more than signaled a kind of civil religion. And that's the thing sometimes that happens even in our own day is we'll take Christianity and we'll make it a civil religion. We have all the trappings of Christianity. We have all of our heads of state and all the different people who say that they're Christian or they say that they go to church and maybe even walk in every Sunday for the, for the photo op. And by the way, friends, on either side of the aisle, and they're only giving just enough religious attention so that they know that, hey, we, we are a Christian nation, or we are a religious nation, or we have God on our side. That's what they did. That's what all the nations did. They took their gods, their poultry gods, right? They took their gods, and they made them, and they gave them just enough worship so that they could appease them so that they could be a powerful and successful nation. And Israel was falling in suit with the same thing. So, again... Enter Ezekiel. Judah has been fallen. Ezekiel is, again, in the second wave of the exiles who was carried off to Babylon. He was in, moved not where Daniel was, who was to the, king's, the kingdom city, like the main city, the throne, right, the palace. He was out here on the river in the Kabar Canal with uh, more of the, the, the tradesmen. And, uh, he's out there and he experiences this Vision. Vision tells us that that he happened to him when he was about around 25 years old, and 
He was training to be a priest when he left Babylon, I mean, when he left Jerusalem. And, uh, and you probably wonder, like, well, what priests had very distinct duties. Their duties were to what? To serve in the temple. Well, now the temple, he's not in Jerusalem. He's not near the temple. So he probably thinks, well, that calling's gone out the door. So maybe I don't have a calling anymore. Maybe God doesn't want to use me in this way. But, it, but he does. Not in priestly ways, but in prophetic ways. And he comes to him and gives us this vision. And, and the reason why this vision is important, and the reason why his message is important, is that not only was he to encourage Ezekiel that there's work to be done in Babylon, but he needed to be the mouthpiece so that God's people will remember that. Amen. That somehow or another, God's people probably were worried that because they weren't in Jerusalem, they didn't have access to God, and therefore they were cut off from him. And that's not the case. For Ezekiel and for the people, God was preparing something special for them, something different. And through the mouthpiece of Ezekiel to the Jews, it says in verse 3, the Lord put his hand upon him for this great message. Now, he was a unique prophet, as we've already said. He's not like the other prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who were contemporaries in, in, in southern Judah or in southern kingdom. Some have called him odd. Some commentators even call him pathological because he kind of has some weirdness and psychotic. And some of the imagery we're going to see in Ezekiel is not like, you go, what, what in the world am I supposed to learn from that? I'll give you an example. Please don't be offended by this. It's the word of God. But there will be an example and a vision, a sign act, they call it, where in order to show the hardness of Israel's heart, Ezekiel cooks his food over his own feces. That's pretty stark. And people are like, mm, that's kind of weird. Is that really a message I need to hear? I don't know. We'll, you, we'll talk about that here in a few weeks, right? But the reality is he's not doing things the same way that Jeremiah did. He's not doing the same things that Isaiah did or even Daniel. Daniel had a very specific ministry in this process, in this time period. But all of this was done because God wanted to communicate through him through these strange and symbolic actions, he wanted to use these actions to show God's people the hardness of their heart and how they had run from the only God, the only way that they could ever be rescued, the only way they'd ever find peace and shalom, as we mentioned earlier. They were far from him. And he calls Ezekiel to do some hard things and some weird things. And sometimes he does that for God's people today, does he not? In the end, Ezekiel is a prophet called by God to use special means to communicate, to, to communicate that reminds God's people of who he is, why he's judging them, and where the hope they need needs to be fixed on as they look to the future. That's the main idea. That kind of leads us into the second point. What is Ezekiel's message? Well, I, I'm going to kind of hit this very high level for us for this morning, because obviously I can't hit on this. Again, we're in the forest, not the trees. But really, verse chapters 1 through 3, God reminds Ezekiel through this great vision, specifically in chapter, into chapter 1, he reminds Ezekiel that I am the ruler of the world. He gives him this fantastic vision of himself and uh, uh, these visions of the likeness of his own glory. And he's reminding his people, they're in Babylon. That's really key here. They're far from God in their minds. They're far from the temple. They're far from all that, what it means to be, to be Jewish. And God says, no, you're not. I'm near you. I'm coming to you. And he comes to them in, through this vision through Ezekiel, to them in Israel, I mean in Babylon, for two main reasons. Number one, it had probably crept up in both 
Israel and Judah's minds over the years, leading up to this exile, leading up to this, this, um, this, this siege of the city, that their fate would be determined by the powers that hovered at the borders of their, of their land. I mean, if anything seems to have influenced them so much, even going way back to Samuel, way back to Saul, it was the fact that they wanted to be like the other nations because they wanted to have the same safety and security that the other nations seemed to provide. And so they cried out to be like the other nations. It seems to me that one of the reasons Ezekiel's and God reveals himself in this vision is to tell them, you don't need a land, you don't need a building to be my people. I am your God, I am your ruler, you don't need a king. You need me, and I am the rightful ruler of the world. There's a lot of debate among Christians about where is it appropriate for us to have nationalistic or patriotic uh, interests in our nation, and I think there's plenty of reasons to believe that Christians should be a part of those things. But we also must understand that they're not ultimate, they're penultimate. To whatever degree that there's there's advantage for us to be involved in those things, they are penultimate. The ultimate thing is a Christian never gets identified by anything other than the fact that they are God's people no matter where they are, what land they are in, what country they live in, or what, what kind of government they live under. There it seems for us to be reminded of that in these days. But there's a second reason. It is really simple. God's people have begun to doubt God. I mean, as these powers are increasing, and now, particularly now that they're in Babylon, they're probably doubting, is God really with us? Has God abandoned us? They might even be ventured into, is God even real? I mean, you think about wartime historically. When wartime happens, we see this growth in Gnosticism. We see this growth in, you know, uh, atheism. Why? Because people begin to doubt in such harsh and cruel realities there is a God, and that this God is good, that this God is loving, and that this God is all-powerful. Enter God through Ezekiel in this moment. And we're going to talk about that next week, really particularly. Who is God? Who does God reveal himself to be? So I want to just wet your whistle for that one this morning. Enter God, who is just, who is ruler, he is powerful, he does judge he does love and he does protect and he does care for his people. He does follow through with his promises. No matter what we, they, God's people may face. Second thing that God does, number one, is a, so that's the first message, that God rules. The second message of Ezekiel is God judges. Yes, God judges. I wonder if that's not a popular idea today, but God does judge. Amen. God does judge the world that the wickedness that is not his, that those people he's not redeemed. But friends, we also have to recognize he judges his own people too. Clearly he does. Now, the difference in that judgment is one judgment has a finality to it, has no hope in it. One judgment is a corrective judgment that draws people back to God's people, back into trusting their God and walking with them and helping them see that he's there not to hurt them, not to, to be angry with them, but to, be, to discipline them so that they might remember their covenant with God. Friends, when we experience this, we must remember the same thing. So you look at verse, uh, chapters 4 through 7, Ezekiel communicates, as I mentioned earlier, these synax. They call them acted theater. 
And they represented Israel how their hearts have been turned from God. I mentioned that a second ago. And then you got chapters 8 through 11. God gives Ezekiel a vision of what apostasy of the temple worship had happened and how God himself was going to leave the temple. There's a picture in this vision of the temple leaving Jerusalem. And that seems weird that God would leave Jerusalem and he would leave the temple, but he does leave the temple because of God's people's disobedience. But also gives us hope in the second part of chapter 11, which is kind of like a hinge chapter in Ezekiel, that not only does he judge, but he provides hope that where his presence leaves the temple, he will be be once, once again with his people again in his full presence. This is what we see today through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then one day in the new temple, the new and better Jerusalem and heaven, new and and better new, uh, uh, sorry, heavens and earth. And so then chapters 12 through 33, God judges Israel and he judges the nations that have conquered them. And he's the only one who judges with righteousness. He's the only one who judges with equity. I know that's not a popular word today. You know why we can't do it with equity? Because we're not capable of it. But God is a God who is righteous and judge of everything he does. And he can judge the nations himself because he's the only one rightfully to do so. And he can judge his own people because he's the only one rightfully Rightfully, he could do so. He is the only standard of righteousness. So God rules. God judges. And then third message of Ezekiel is God restores. And that's what we'll get to 30, chapters 34 through 48. If you have one of these little reading guides, I meant to mention it earlier, this will help you kind of follow our sermon series and how we're going to read. And so this might be helpful to you to kind of read ahead and think through these things a little bit. I would encourage you to do so. If you didn't get one of these when you got your bulletin, there's some on that back table in the back. But I would really encourage you to do so. Do this. The third message is God restores. And 34 through the end of the book is basically God restoring. The remainder of the prophecy is devoted to reminding the Jewish people that they have hope through one, a new and better King David. Who is that? Jesus. That they have hope through, for a new and better Israel. Who is that? The church. That they have hope for a new and better Hope for the nations, meaning God will finally judge the nations in their fullness, and those who will repent and believe will have hope themselves. They will have a true and better hope, a new and, I'm sorry, a new and better temple, that we are the temple where the Holy Spirit resides. So in the beginning of this prophecy, God reveals himself to Ezekiel. In the middle of this prophecy, it shows his glory leaving the temple, but at the very end of this prophecy, all the way down into 46, 40 through 46, God shows his presence being coming to Israel again. That's a reminder of the fact that in this temple, God does have his presence. His presence dwells within his people. And then lastly, that there will be a new and better garden, a new and better city, Jerusalem, in 47 through 48. But again, the ultimate message is God strengthens. God strengthens his people. It runs underneath everything in this prophecy. It's, it's, it's beautiful how God uses Ezekiel's own name to undergird all of this. That's the main message. God strengthens us through his rule. God strengthens us through his judgment. God strengthens us as he restores us. Don't ever forget that. Now, why does this all matter to us? Well, it matters to us because, number one, our worship matters to God. 
Israel was judged because their first failure was a failure to worship God the way God had commanded them to worship. The first level of, of, of accommodation to the world was to accommodate their worship. And when that began to kind of crack, God began, then, then, then the seeds of sin and whatnot began to kind of form in under that. Our worship is the most important thing about us. Or you may have heard it put this way by Tozer, what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Is that not worship? And how we think about God is defined by who God says he is and how God says we are to worship him. If there's one strong indictment on the modern church in America, just like the, the day of Israel, it is this, that our worship is weak. Our worship is weak. We have reduced it to mere experientialism. We've reduced it to revivalism. We've reduced it to pietism. We reduce all these things rather than the way God calls us to worship him, which is to engage him as he is. In all the ways God calls us to worship him, we should worship him the way he calls us. And when we begin to, 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 to kind of pitch and capitulate, guess what happens? God's people get weak. That's why we here at Grace Church, we, 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 we try to pursue the regular principle. And that's a really weird word. But the Reformed folks believe that there were very clear ways in which we're to worship God, the reading of Scripture, the praying together, the, the, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, um, and then most importantly, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of God's word. We're not allowed to make worship in our own image. Please don't go out there looking for a church that you just like to go to because you like how they do things. No, go out there because that church, to the best of their ability, no church is perfect. All God carves a straight path with a crooked stick all the time. This church is no, we're not where we want to be, where there's always room for improvement. But choose a church because they're doing everything they know to be faithful to what God has revealed about worship. Because if you get worship right, then you begin to build the people up right, and therefore then there, you, you see less capitulation to the world around us. And I just don't know that God's very happy with worship in most cases among God's people. We've made it more about us and our feelings than about God and his character and his nature. When we are deadened in our affections because we have worshipped God poorly, we pave the way towards sin to take a deeper root in our life. That's, that's, that was it. It never was injustice in Israel until they had capitulated on worship. And that's the second reason why we need this message. Our sin matters to God. Our sin matters to God. Again, when we deaden our affection to the worship of God, we pave the way for sin to take a deeper root in our own hearts. Our God despises sin. Do you believe that? If we do believe that, is it noticeable in our love? It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we're not going to find places where we struggle with sin in different places. But do we feel burdened by it? Do we feel, do we feel, do we feel broken by it? Do we feel a desire to be right with God when we are in those places? Sin matters to God, and we dare not minimize it. And I, all the time, we minimize our sin. We have a church... And just like Israel's day today that minimizes sin, and we see it everywhere. 
We see it everywhere. And I wish I could take time to just unpack my own thoughts on that, but I, I, that I will unpack over the time of our, in, in our time when, um, in Ezekiel. The people of Jude, Israel and Judah minimized worship and that allowed them to minimize their sin and therefore capitulate to the pagan social norms of their enemies. And do you think that we're any different? Of course we're not. That is why we're, that's why they were conquered then. And that's why the church, a weak church, will be conquered today. It doesn't, we, will do, we will only be conquered not because we don't, we don't play the right cultural games. We'll be conquered because we don't worship God and we don't keep him uppermost in our affections and therefore keep a high value of what it means to live a holy life. Not on our own power, but through the work of the Spirit in us. Amen? That's the truth for us today as it was for them too. When we have a low view of worship, we have a low view of God. And when we have a low view of God, we have a low view of holiness. And when we have a low view of holiness, we have a low view of his covenant relationship with us. And thus, a low view of how we are to live as his people. Don't talk to me about covenant relationship with God. If you have a low view of sin, a low view of holiness, and therefore a low view of worship. Because if you have all those things, you have a low view of God. Amen? I do, and I've caught myself there. I'm not speaking to anyone else in this room first before I speak to myself. I have done this. I have seen myself give permission to attitudes and sin patterns in my life because at the end of the day, I, took, I, I had contempt on God's grace. No, we should never do that. Third. And, and this, is the, this is the final point. Worship matters to God, and because worship matters to God, our sin matters to God, and because our sin matters to God, you matter to God. I matter to God. A God who's gracious enough to step into our mess, reveal his holy character to us, call us to worship him rightly, is a God of grace. He can let us roll around in the mud if he wants to. He can let us roll around in our squalor if he wants to. But this is a God of grace who comes in as holy God, holy judge, sovereign and good, good, a good uh, redeemer of all things. And he says to us, you matter to me, therefore you will worship me, and therefore you will take your sin seriously, and therefore by, with the work of my Holy Spirit you will be a holy people. You matter to God, and this is what we'll see throughout the end parts of our time in Ezekiel, He is because... He works on our behalf. How does God work on our behalf? We'll see this in Ezekiel. He renews your heart. Ezekiel 36, 37, particularly. He renews our heart. Right? He takes our hard hearts of stone and makes them into a heart of flesh. He raises us from the dead. Ezekiel 37, the old dry bones. He makes us new life out of things that, were, that are dead. He sanctifies us slowly and progressively through that. And he promises us paradise. You matter to God, friend. You may have walked in here this morning, I have done it, I have botched it, I am so far from God, I continue to capitulate on this one area of my life, and I'm just telling you right now, by faith, you can have all of the assurance that God loves you and that you matter to God because he demands worship, because he has a high view of sin, and he doesn't and will not allow you to squander it in the mud pit somewhere. 
So at the end of the day, the message of Ezekiel is simple. God strengthens his people as we wait for paradise. He calls us to worship him rightly. He calls us to take our sins seriously. He calls us to remember his grace because he cares for you and for me. Amen? Father, now help us as we finish up our time and we prepare ourselves for Lord's Supper. As our brother Jim comes and leads us in our Lord's time and supper this morning, God, would you just be magnified as your people sharing this meal together? Not our meal, but your meal, the meal you invited us into. Father, be glorified as we leave this place and prepare ourselves to study this wonderful book over the weeks and months ahead. In Christ's name.